Welcome to episode 284 of The Digital Life, a show about our insights into the future of design and technology. I'm your host, John Follett, and with me is founder and co-host, Dirk Niemeyer. Greetings, listeners. This week, we're going to be talking about the productivity paradox, so-called, uh, which is inspired by the article in MIT's technology review magazine called uh, Advanced Tech but slow growth and unequal paradoxes and policies. So in the short article on technology review, there's actually quite a bit of broad policy recommendations, which we may get into some of those. I doubt we'll cover them all in our show today, but encourage listeners to check out MIT's technology review magazine, which is a lot of fun to read. So the article presents this so-called productivity paradox, which is essentially sort of mapping this uh, boom in technology. So we have all our fantastic digital technologies that we talk regularly about on the show, and then sort of maps that to this strange result, which is slowing productivity growth in major economies across the world. So, you know, what is the reason for this increase in technology and then subsequent sort of flatlining of productivity? And that's sort of what the uh, article digs into and, and suggests some policy uh, tweaks or full-out changes in some uh, areas that I tend to agree with. What's funny is, I, you know, the, the premise itself, the productivity paradox, I, I find kind of funny because it's this idea that this one thing that we're measuring, which is sort of how effectively and efficiently we can create value, right, is the this really important metric. And I understand, yes, from an economic perspective, that may be, uh, you know, really a critical metric. I, I think it's also interesting or important that we consider that efficiency and productivity are not, you know, the sole important metrics of our day-to-day -day lives and economy. But we won't dig into that argument uh, too much on the show. Uh, but the, I mean, the bottom line, John, is that that's 19th century thinking. Those are constructs and systems and economic theories that were developed, you know, now hundreds of years ago, uh, totally out of step with where we're at today and where we're going tomorrow. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Thanks for phrasing it that way. The thing that I do think is interesting is, and, and, and what the article cites as a problem, is, is this technology penetration throughout various businesses and users and people throughout the economy. Like, So the technology is there but it's not being used to its full potential or even to, you know, in some cases, any of its potential. And this is what is causing this productivity paradox, right? So let's dig into that question, right? So what's interesting is, you know, we can take a look at pretty much any emerging or even some what we'd call sort of standard technologies now. And we can look at each of those and see how poorly uh, they're being used, right? So now, 
not to not to pick on the Internet of Things because there was obviously this huge hype cycle uh, in 2017 and 2016 in which pretty much everything was going to be connected to the Internet of Things. That hype cycle since moved on to artificial intelligence. Now everything's going to have artificial intelligence in it. Thanks very much technology press. But the Internet of Things, even though you know, it sort of kerchunks along and, and we're, we're seeing more and more evidence of sort of sensor-laden products, buildings, cities, etc., so, you know, slowly coming online, the truth is that you know, this is a multi-year process to get these products these and and you know even even longer for things like smart cities to get online and then after that you know you've got this sea of data which you know some may be useful some may not be useful and you know take years to sort of pour through that and then you know figure out how you are going to automate things around that data, which means you need to recognize the patterns in the data and then make tweaks and then see how those adjustments work out. And that's, you know, a very realistic scenario. And that doesn't even take into account all the operations and maintenance, uh, things failing, projects not getting financing or getting off the ground. So this is not what we talk about a lot in the technology industry, but it, it's the the sort of very unsexy adoption of technology over time. And if you look at sort of graphs and charts of like the 20th century and seeing how long it took electricity, cars, electric lights, telephones, all of these things to achieve market penetration and become useful to people, you'll see that it takes tens of years for this to happen. So I'm sorry if that sort of busts the hype cycle for folks, but I mean, it wouldn't be much of a sale if you say, hey, let's let's get your smart city online. A decade later, you might see something out of it. Yeah, but you know, we've, we've talked, I know you and I have talked about this a lot. I'm, I'm not sure how much we've talked about it on the show, but it's an infrastructure problem. It's, it takes a long time to have physical infrastructure that people have invested in that's in place at the personal level, like a home, at the city level, like, uh, you know, the, the vast infrastructure undergirding uh, the, the cities that we live in, it's just non-trivial to transform those things. There is a level of physical barrier that does move it into decades instead of months or years. Now, what's interesting, though, is with software, we see much faster evolution. With, you know, personal consumer technology, particularly today, we see much faster evolution. Like, if we think about if we think about an analog might be thinking about like televisions and radios, which, you know, those technologies also move more slowly back then, but the limitations weren't infrastructure based. They were technology based today. Technology is developing at a much more rapid pace. And so we see, you know, for example, the evolution from an iPod to an iPhone is less than a decade. And that's massive. (laughs) I mean, that's revolutionary. So, uh, you know, a lot of it is about the context and what the physical constraints are. And, you know, sort of the bigger the thing, you know, when you, again, when you're at the level of a home or a city, the more that those constraints, it doesn't matter where the tech is, you're just going to hit that like a freaking hammer because people don't have the money. The country doesn't have the money. We can't just re-implement everything. Yeah. And to add to your infrastructure comment, I would also say there are workflow and process 
and you know, on a deeper level or cultural issues that come along with each of these technologies. So I'll give an example. Um, for instance, in say like the late 90s, early 2000s, working remotely was still sort of just a weird thing that you had to get permission to do, right? Mm -hmm. So it was permission-based sort of like, hey, you're getting special treatments. You get to work at home in your pajamas. You're taking advantage of the system and technology is allowing you to do this in some way or another. Today, there are companies that, you know, for better or worse, right, are entirely virtual. They don't have headquarters anymore. They work from a combination of shared office space, people working at home, and then convening in, you know, sort of rented space when, when they need to sort of hold large events or meetings. So that's a generational change. It took a solid 20 years for the idea of the virtual company. And I'm sure there were some early adopters of that. But this sort of cultural norm that is the expectation of, pardon the phrase, maybe the younger uh, set, the millennial set, right? That was not the case when, as a Gen Xer, I was thinking, hey, it would be nice to work home one day a week uh, at you know, one of my earlier places of employment. And they were like, uh, nope, you got to be here. <laughs> you got to be in the office. That was a, my boss's boss was an old, older school gentleman and really wanted everybody in the office. Flex time was considered revolutionary. The fact that I wasn't there at like eight o'clock in the morning, I came in at like 930. That was nuts. So that was unheard of. Yeah, I mean, we're running into other barriers now. You know, we talked about technology and infrastructure, but those are cultural barriers, right? Culture can, can slow things down as well. Certainly, the technology has been in place for remote work, you know, going back to relatively early days of the internet. I mean, my career after graduate school started in uh, 99. And the technology was there for me to work at home just as much as I am today. Now, you know, there's new software. Like right now we're using Zoom, which is a better piece of software to sort of enhance the connection between the remote working and, and the HQ, so to speak. But those differences are, are marginal. You know, um, you know when, when we had email and everybody was using email professionally, which again is, you know, 20, you know, basically 20 years old now, we had the tools that we needed along with our old school telephones, mobile phones to, to work remotely, but the cultural, you know, the cultural gravity well of there's this other way that things are done and those things are based on all of these beliefs, assumptions, values, frames of the world. It took a long time to overcome that. So there's all of these factors, you know, it would be interesting to read and maybe somebody's already written something about it, I haven't come across it, that sort of breaks down all of the factors that block implementation to go right. from technology or concept to manifestation in the world. Um, because it's, it's super nuanced. Yeah, that I mean, and, and I can think of tons of examples of this in our practice at the studio at GoInvo, where we encounter you know, healthcare software and technology, and a lot of the barriers to adoption are sort of the way people have gotten used to doing things. I mean, I hate to say it, but the fax is still a popular way of transferring information in uh, certain areas of healthcare. I mean, that's that's just yeah. You've yeah, healthcare, government, banks, like giant, giant old slow institutions still use that, whereas 
younger, you know, younger industries think it's, you know, batshit crazy, basically. Yeah, I, I don't know what to do when I encounter a required field that says facts. <laughs> I just enter all fives or all ones. <laughs> Right. I'm sure you do the same. So if those are all the factors that sort of make, you know, realizing productivity from all these technological advances, you know, if those are some of the different factors that make it difficult uh, right now, we can only assume that those same blockers are going to be in effect as, you know, further, you know, technology develops and, and sort of intersects and creates all these sort of promising possibilities, whether it's uh, artificial intelligence-powered software, genomics-powered healthcare, you know, the aforementioned Internet of Things creating smarter cities. These are all going to run into the buzzsaw of infrastructure and culture. And I think where there's enough capital to sort of force those things through, you know, in very select areas, I think we'll see some successes, you know, also uh, sort of maybe hampered a little bit by all the problems that early adopters experience, of course, but... You know, um, if, oh, sorry, you know, John, when you were saying that, if they had the vision, the place to do it would be someplace like Dubai, Instead of, you know, in, instead of taking that blank slate and investing in uh, Bentleys and old school or, or very modernly designed, but still skyscrapers and instead of investing in these 20th century icons of progress and success, if they said, we're going to take just the most ballsy technology and build whole communities using it, boy, that's the, the sort of case where you could really see something happen because you have... Uh, you have huge area with lack of infrastructure, you have gigantic amounts of money, and you have people wanting to show how powerful and smart that they are. Like that's, to me, that's the, if, if somebody wanted to leap forward and say, look what's possible, I mean, that would be the kind of situation where to do it. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that there's, there's uh, you know, I, I, I'm not familiar with, uh, you know, the the economy of, of Dubai. I know that there are various initiatives around innovation in the Middle East uh, precisely because of that. I mean, eventually the oil does run out and they have to have other, other industries. But yes, that uh, point taken, that's, you know, would be a, sort of the perfect storm of, you know, lack of infrastructure and, and sort of the, the possibilities of, of great wealth. So this article sort of, uh, you know, concludes with some recommendations around policy, which I think are useful. And one of those, of course, is uh, this idea about pace of change, right, for the worker and the ideas, you know, around, you know, what, what do we have in place to allow people to adapt to new industries, to change in their industry, to, you know, maybe, maybe even, you know, taking on a whole new set of skills that they never thought they would need to learn. We've dealt with this topic a bit uh, around the idea of AI automation. And I, I think you and I are, you know, fairly adaptable in in uh, adopting skills. But certainly on a on a, on a large scale, I could see a tremendous need for this sort of ongoing education and reskilling of workers. So I did think that policy recommendation, of course, broad and and not uh, not including a lot of specifics. You know, that that's the right direction. We're really not talking about that too much as a country yet, I'd, I would almost see a, an additional layer to the education system that's required 
you know, we have our public schools and we have public and private colleges. I think there's another layer of education that needs to happen in order for uh, modern uh, economies to be able to continue to be productive and compete in the future. Yeah, I mean, if you go back to some of our past episodes, like the, Ben Nelson, I think what, what he's doing at Minerva, it's not revolutionary, really. It's sort of a, a big, you know, a big stride that's different from uh, where we are now. But it, it's, it's sort of foreshadowing mm-hmm. the kinds of things that will need to be happening where the education is more integrated into communities, where the sort of teacher-student relationship is one that is more virtualized, um, that the these sort of curriculums are more integrated and more sort of practical and um, profession oriented at the end of the day. So I think, I, I, you know, I think there are blueprints of where that will go. It's just going to take time for it to evolve as always. Yeah. And, you know, I loved that, that, uh, that interview and, and episode on Minerva. It, you know, it got me to thinking that, you know, we, we talk a lot at GoInvo about owning, you know, your healthcare data and sort of the patient being the center of, uh, you know, 99% of your health happens outside of the doctor's office, right? So I suspect that it's not going to be 99% of your education happens outside of school. But, but the idea that there's this huge chunk of education that's going to be required once you're outside of the so-called years where you're, you're a student, right? So it's expected for younger folks to be students uh, through high school and into college, right? Um, but it's less so expected for adults to be part of that and continually learning. I'd love to, you know, have my own repo of education and, and, and you know, whether it's virtualized or not, and just be able to track what I'm learning over time and continually learn. I think owning our educational mechanisms in some shape or form, whether it's to show the credits, so it shows that I'm learning, or you know, just simply for our own ability to track these things. I think the student as the center of education might be an interesting model in the future as well. Listeners, remember that while you're listening to the show, you can follow along with the things that we're mentioning here in real time. Just head over to the digitallife.com, that's just one L in the digital life, and go to the page for this episode. We've included links to pretty much everything mentioned by everyone, so it's a rich information resource to take advantage of while you're listening or afterward if you're trying to remember something that you liked. You can find The Digital Life on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Player FM, and Google Play. And if you'd like to follow us outside of the show, you can follow me on Twitter at John Follett, that's J-O-N-F-O-L-L-E-T-T. And of course, the whole show is brought to you by GoInvo, a studio designing the future of healthcare and emerging technologies, which you can check out at GoInvo.com. That's G-O-I-N-V-O.com. Dirk? You can follow me on Twitter at Dniemeyer. That's at D-K-N-E-M-E-Y-E-R. And thanks so much for listening. So that's it for episode 284 of The Digital Life. For Dirk Niemeyer, I'm John Follett, and we'll see you next time.